Good morning, how's everyone? Good, my name's Eric. If you haven't met me, we'd love to get to know you, help connect you to our church. Uh, we have a welcome center out in the courtyard where we have gifts and information and literature to help you uh, grow in your faith as well as connect to our church. So we'd love to do that. Also keep our Romania team in your prayers as they're there sharing the gospel, loving the children and uh, building relationships. We wanna pray that they make it back safe and continue to be the hands and feet of Jesus and an extension of us in Romania. So let's keep them in your prayers. And uh, I'm gonna pray and we'll get into uh, our text. Dear Jesus, we thank you uh, for this opportunity just to open your word and we just pray that your word would be a lamp into our feet. It would guide us and direct us and teach us. And we just pray that uh, we would have a deeper understanding of what your text says, that we would uphold the word of God as uh, what we use as our guide in life, as what gives us direction and we pray for your words to speak and not mine. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 12, and we're in verse 38. And <clears throat> there's probably, there's, there's passages that get you made fun of in the Bible. And uh, this one is probably, I've gotten made fun of the most. And so it's important we understand this passage uh, in its fullness. And so for some of you, you're like, this is a little bit too nerdy. I know you guys are super cool and I'm nerdy, but this is important because it has huge implications. And we want to look at uh, what happens when you undo a thread or a fabric of the Bible and what are the implications for that. And, you know, I think we're used to non-Christians attacking us. Uh, what is unique about this passage, it is primarily used from Christians to attack us on, on what we believe. And so it's important that we understand that and we understand the implications of it and we see what, what's happening. So this is a true story. I was having a lunch with a seminary professor. And if you don't know what a seminary is, that's where pastors go to get their master's or PhD or doctorate of ministry, upper level education. And so you, he's the president of a school that trains pastors from a master's level or higher in education. You guys with me? Okay. So if anyone should know what they're talking about, you would hope it'd be the president of the seminary. And our discussion was around the inerrancy of Scripture. Well, I believed it, our church believes it, and he didn't. Okay, inerrancy simply is the, the belief that we believe the Bible is historically and scientifically accurate. That's different than saying the Bible is infallible, right? Infallible means all that the Bible says about salvation is true. It won't be fallible. It won't lead you to error. Saved by grace, by faith, through Christ, infallibility. So inerrancy, we're talking about the historical reliability of the Bible. And so he goes, oh, I see who you are. You're one of those guys that believes Jonah was swallowed by a real fish. And he's laughing at me. And I go, actually, yeah, I do. And he goes, that's, that's disappointing. Almost like he couldn't take me serious. And I said, what's, what's your hang up with Jonah and the big fish? And he goes, well, you completely miss the message of the text. Jonah is about Israel not wanting to be a light to the Gentiles. I said, yeah, you're right. What's that got to do with the fish? And he's looking at me and I'm like, just because you believe Jonah was swallowed by a fish doesn't mean you don't believe he was supposed to go to Nineveh and share the gospel. I don't see how the two aren't compatible. And he looks at me as if, well, no, 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 you can't say that. 
And he's saying, well, everyone always talks about the fish. And I'm like, yeah, because it's pretty crazy. But it doesn't mean that Jonah wasn't supposed to go and share and call Nineveh into repentance. He goes, well, that's just silly. You know, there's no evidence to show that that was a, a real event, that he was a real person. I mean, he was hung up on this fish. And so I looked at him and I said, hey, do you believe in creation? And he looked at me and he's like, yeah, why? And I said, well, I just don't understand. If you believe that God can speak the world into existence, what's your big hang up with the fish? Right? You got Pluto, Mars, stars, oceans, mountains. And he's like, well, I'm not a six-day creationist. I'm like, I don't care. You believe that God made the thing that made the thing. Either way, he made it, right? And you're hung up on the fish? I just don't understand. He looks at me and he goes, you know I have a PhD in the Old Testament, right? And I'm like, what's that got to do with the fish? I didn't say that. But in my head, I'm I'm like, okay, I see what's going on. You know, you're the old guy, I'm the young guy. I don't have a PhD. I I see where this is going. And so then he reads me his resume about commentaries he's written and on and on and on. And he just couldn't get over it. Here's my point. People will pull at that thread because they don't want to believe in a fish because it's silly. And their, their academic friends will make fun of you. And so in order to make the Bible more palatable and understandable, believable, They'll pull out the parts and say, that's just a narrative. It's just a nice example of what it means um, to share your faith or a reluctancy or God redeeming someone who didn't want to do something and then he, he got him to do something. It's just a narrative because they don't want to look dumb. But there's a consequence to that. And the consequence comes right in this passage. Because let me ask you a question. Should we view the Old Testament the same way Jesus used the Old Testament? It's not a trick question. That's fair, right? So how does Jesus treat this Testament? Okay, so we've come to chapter 12. And the, they, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they've been working really hard to discredit Jesus. They've tried to call him Satan, right? This he's doing the work of Satan. And Jesus is going, well, if I'm doing the work of Satan, how are you casting out demons? You must be doing the work of Satan. Like, oh man, that didn't work. We'll try, to, we'll try to bamboozle him with questions about the law and the Sabbath and marriage and divorce. Oh, that's not working. So they come to this place. They're like, well, let's just see if he can do a sign on demand. There's just anything to discredit Jesus because they don't like what he's saying. Uh, they're living in this reality that, okay, he's, he's, a, he's a carpenter from Galilee with a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and, and prostitutes and, and sinners. He can't be who he says he is. So they ask him this question, Do it, give us a sign, give us a sign. And this is Jesus' response, verse 39. He says, but you answered them, an evil, adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay, now why is this important? Jesus is going to, I want you to catch this, look in verse 41, Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Do we see that? Jesus compares himself to Jonah, says, I'm greater than Jonah. The, the verse before it, in, in that, in 41, the statement before it, he says, Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
So Jesus does two things. He compares himself to Jonah and he compares the religious leaders to Nineveh. Two comparisons. Now, if this is just a narrative, essentially this is what Jesus is doing. It would be like you coming to my office and I'm trying to explain Jesus. And I said, have you ever heard of Yoda, the greatest, right? The greatest Jedi to ever live? You're like, oh yes, I know of Yoda. There is one greater than Yoda and his name is Jesus. And you're like, Jesus had a lifesaver? I'm like, no, no, folk, it, it wouldn't hold any water, would it? It wouldn't hold any water. What would I have said? You know what? Husband who's failing as a father and a man, have you ever seen Darth Vader? He is even better than you because even he changed. If Darth Vader can change, so can you. You imagine doing pastoral counseling through fake stories? It holds no water. Jesus is like, look, I'm greater than the made up guy. I'm greater than that Jonah guy who doesn't exist. And these people who don't exist, they're better than you completely falls apart, doesn't it? Not to mention his next example is the Queen of Sheba and Solomon, a real king and a real queen. Jesus treats it as historical fact. Do not be embarrassed because people say you're dumb. They say it doesn't make sense. Odds are they believe in creation and they believe in the resurrection. If Jesus comes from the dead and speaks the ocean into existence, I don't know why we care about whales and the flood. and that. Why, why do we get hung up on those things? If you believe the greater thing, believe the lesser thing. Okay, the point is Jesus uses it as fact. And Jesus is getting at a very specific fact. Because Jonah was a prophet. This is why Jesus says, I am the greater prophet. Solomon's a king. I am the greater king. He's the greater prophet, greater king. And he unfolds this story about Jonah. So what do we know about Jonah? We know that Jonah hates Nineveh. And to understand the disdain of why, jo why Jonah would not want to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel and bring them to repentance, we have to understand Nineveh is seen as a great enemy of the northern and southern kingdom of Israel. The equivalent would be like we, we were coming right out of Pearl Harbor being bombed. And God comes to you and he says, I want you to go share the gospel in Japan. You're coming out of a post 9-11. And he comes to you and says, I want you to go to Afghanistan and share the gospel with, with Muslims who are radicalized. He had an extreme like, no, not them, anybody but them. So Jonah says, you know what? I'm not going to go. I'm not going to do it. So Jonah goes and he gets on a boat and he tries to go 2,200 miles, the exact opposite direction of where God wants him to go. He wants to go to Spain. So in the process of him trying to go there, a storm rises up. And then these, these, these you know, sailors, they're kind of bright. They're like, okay, this is weird. This is out of the ordinary. Did you make your God mad? No. Did you make your God mad? No. If I didn't make God mad, you didn't make God mad. It must be Jonah. Where's Jonah? Jonah's asleep. Fascinating, Jonah's asleep during a storm. Anyway, so he gets up. They wake him up. They're like, hey, did you make your God mad? He's like, yep. Yep, he told me to go to Nineveh and I don't want to go. They're like, well, what do we do? He's like, just throw me off the boat and everything will be fine. Jonah's ready to die. Like, just kill me. They don't have to go. I don't have to see them come to saving faith. Perfect solution in Jonah's mind. 
Think about it. This is how bad he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. This is how evil he thinks the people in Nineveh are, that they are not worthy of being saved. They are so evil and so vile, he'd just rather sink to the bottom of the ocean. Nineveh's not being portrayed very nice here, are they? Okay. So then what happens? So this is important. When you read the story of Jonah, some people are like, well, it says that he was in the depths and there was like seaweed and you can't have seaweed inside of a whale. Okay. You're assuming that it's not giving you a sequential order of events. He's thrown into the ocean. He's drowning. In the depths of drowning, the whale comes and actually becomes a place of refuge. And it is out of that near death into place of refuge that he begins to pray and repent and meet with the Lord. And it is in those three days that he now comes to a place where he says, okay, Lord. And he spits them out and he puts them on dry land. Now, really quick, again, told you this passage is riddled with just people attacking the Bible. Three days. It's compared to the resurrection. He says, hey, as here, we'll be there. Well, three days, it says that it was done late on a Friday and early on a Sunday. That's not three days. Okay? The Bible's not saying literally 72 hours. If it was 72 hours, it'd be midnight, Friday morning, Sunday at 11.59 p.m. And even then, it's 23 hours and 59 minutes, so it'd still be, right? Or 71 hours, and I'm a pastor, not a mathematician, right? You get the point. It's not saying 72, it's saying over the course of three days. Is that fair? Over the course of three days, he was in oil. Just like over the course of three days, son of man will rise from the dead. So Jonah goes, and I want you to see the message that Jonah gives to these people. This is the grand message that the people of Nineveh were given. Jonah 3, 4. He goes to Nineveh and says, and says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's one heck of a message, isn't it? This is the message that's given to the people of Nineveh. This message permeates and grows and it goes to the, to the king of Nineveh, Jonah 3.8. Okay, he says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let them, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. He's saying, look, the people of Nineveh heard one phrase from the prophet, and they turn, they turn. Same word here, verse 41. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. You have to think of this. Jonah is a reluctant, unwilling preacher with one line, and they repent and they turn. Chapter four, verse two, gives us a little bit of insight. Why, did, why was Jonah so in opposition? Four, two, let's read this. It says, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are, look at, look at how he describes God. You're gracious, you're merciful, you're slow to anger, you're abounding in steadfast love, and you're relenting from disaster. Five Five adjectives he describes God. Five, he's like, I knew you would do this. I knew you would do this. It's exactly why I didn't want to go. So when Jesus looks at Nineveh, and mind you, at the end, at the end of the book of Jonah, 
If you look at the very end, chapter four, it says that over 120,000 people and all were saved and they didn't know their left from their right. They didn't know their left. They didn't know to do this, right? Their left from their right. So he's basically saying a very uneducated people with with a reluctant prophet and one line, repented and changed. Oh, how much worse are you who have seen God in flesh in the form of Jesus? It wasn't about another sign. Go back to Matthew chapter 10, and when John the Baptist is asking, hey, is he the one? Jesus says, tell John the Baptist what? That the blind can see, that the deaf can hear, that the dead have been raised. What else is left for Jesus to do? Nothing. There's no, it's not about a sign. It's that they didn't like who Jesus was. They didn't like that he was a carpenter, talking to Gentiles, talking to tax collectors. He had no throne, no scepter, no crown, no palace. There's no way he could be a king. They would not change. They would not repent. And Jesus says, you are evil, you are wicked, and you are an adulterer. Better off is Nineveh, the people who didn't know their right from their left because they actually repented. And then Jesus goes on to say, and, and, verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Again, don't miss it. He's the greater king. Solomon was a king. Jesus is a greater king. Jonah was a prophet. Jesus is the better prophet. So he's saying, look, there's this woman, Queen of Sheba. Read it in 1 Kings chapter 10. She's queen in what would be modern day Ethiopia. She hears of the wisdom and wealth of Solomon. And she wants to see it for herself. How is this man so smart? How is he so rich? How is this possible? So she goes on a fact-finding mission to see this Solomon. So she makes it, and it says that she asked questions of Solomon about everything you could think of, about all of life, life and death and prosperity. And it says that she heard all of his answers, and she saw all of his wealth, and she saw how everyone acted. And it's through that reasoning, she praises God and says, clearly God has given you wisdom. God has blessed you and loved you and given Israel his blessing. And then she gives a gift to Solomon. Solomon doesn't need a gift. She's doing it as an act of worship. Your God is amazing. Your God is true. Your God is right. What is Jesus getting at? If the uneducated Nineveh people can believe, and if the brilliant queen can deductively see pragmatically that This is the greatest wisdom she's ever seen, that no man could have this wisdom unless God was giving him this wisdom. If these two types of Gentiles can change, come to saving faith, how much worse are you who have seen the Son of God, who have the Word of God, who have been trained by the prophets, who have had the greatest biblical education that you could ever have, Now he progresses 
into 43. He's saying, you evil people, this is how evil you are. Look at verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it rests, and then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last day of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Man, I hope you're catching the, peach, the, the pictures of Jesus with blonde hair flowing, walking around, and just this loving Jesus. Jesus loves all the time. That's just a part of him. He just said, you're worse than seven demons. That's not very nice. Think about that. He literally says, you're worse than seven demons. What is he getting at? You, religious leaders, It's as if when a demon goes, you have the ability to clean up some things, put some things in order, and have the appearance of being clean. But in reality, you're going to be seven times worse than you were. Why? Because you don't have the Holy Spirit. You're trying to save yourself. You're trying to use the law to say, look at how clean and great I am. So you're cleaning yourself up. You eat the right meats. You give the right amount of money. You fast the right number of times. You pray the right number of times. You put things in a cleanly fashion. This is what what he says in other passages. You are like, like capstones, tombstones. You look pretty on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. He says, in reality, it's gonna come back and it's gonna be seven times more as evil than it was before. Why? Because you've created a system that self justifies your behavior that you don't need a savior and you don't need to change. And Jesus threatens that because he's saying, you can't save yourselves, you need a savior. And the Gentiles are understanding this and the sick are understanding this. The tax collectors, the prostitutes are understanding this. And they're saying, save us, save us. And so what you see in the Sadducees and the Pharisees is like, whoa, whoa, wait. If they get saved, then what we're doing doesn't look as special. If they become a part of the family, which we're going to get to in the next chunk, then it diminishes us being elite because now the prostitute can come and and the tax collector can come and and the fisherman can come and the uneducated can come. If they're a part of it, it diminishes everything. So they double down. They create more rules. They get more angry. They try to get Jesus stumped by asking him questions of the law. They try to kill him. This is why it leads to the crucifixion because if Jesus is who he says it is, they have to change and they don't want to change. They like the little system they've created. They like the rules they've created because it makes them powerful. I mean, how does Jesus interact with them in the temple? They're stealing people's money. Oh, you want to be forgiven? That's going to cost you a little extra on the side and they're pocketing the cash. They have relationships with the government. They've created their own power structure. And if Jesus is right, they're going to have to eat with commoners. They're going to have to call their brothers and sisters in, in Christianity carpenters and, and uneducated fishermen and, and, and adulterers. Oh, we don't want to do that. 
This is why Jesus says you will come back even seven times more evil. You see, we don't have the exact same dilemma in front of us, but we have a similar dilemma in front of us. This is a dilemma. When we don't like the Jesus that's presented in front of us, we change him so that he fits and feels like someone we could follow and agree with. See, they didn't like the idea of a carpenter suffering without a throne, without a crown, without a scepter, and with Gentile people following. They didn't like that. So then he can't be who he says he is. He has to be someone else. See, we're presented with that problem today. Oh, you believe in a real fish? Swallowing it, you're dumb. I don't want my kids going to this church. I've had this conversation with people. You teach in a real flood. You teach in a real whale. I don't teach. That's what the Bible says. Jesus said it was a real fish and Jonah's a real person. Take it up with him. It's what the Bible says. Well, if God was loving, if Jesus was loving, then he, he would agree with letting us marry whoever we want. So I'm going to change what Jesus says so that my friends will like him and my kids will like him and my neighbors will like him. See, Jesus just wants you to be happy. Marry who you want, love who you want, pick your gender, do whatever you want. Jesus just wants you to be happy. We create Jesus in our own narrative or we reject Jesus altogether. The root is we say we don't need to change. Christ needs to change. That's the heart of the Pharisee. Because what did Nineveh do that they wouldn't? Verse 41, they repented. They repented. You read the book of Jonah and the king says we need to turn from our ways and acknowledge God. When there is a reluctancy to do what God says, you have to make that decision. Will I trust him as he is presented and taught or am I going to change him into a way that is more palatable and more fun and more congruent for what I believe and think? Because that is exactly what the Pharisees are doing. And he calls it evil, morally wrong. And he calls it adulterous, unfaithful to the word of God. So now you kind of have this dilemma going on in the text. And this is how the text becomes one consistent thought there's an evil generation that refuses to turn away from their sin. They are worse than Nineveh, worse than the queen of Sheba. So you have the unbelieving and then you have the believing. This is how Jesus transitions it because this is who his family will be. Verse 46, it says, when he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mothers and brothers stood outside asking, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? If you can't just laugh at Jesus, you're missing, like, isn't that funny? Jesus, hey, Jesus, your mom and dad are here to like talk to you. And he's like, who? Who is my mom and who is my brother? And then he says, stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus turns this on its head. He says, actually, the people who are my family, 
aren't the religious leaders, aren't the ones who are clean on the outside and dead on the inside. It's the fishermen, it's the Gentile, it's the tax collector, it's the prostitute, it's the sick, it's the leopardess, it's the ones who know they need a savior. Now, what's interesting, if you read Mark's account, Mark 3, uh, like 21, there's, a, there's an, another layer to this. It's that Jesus' family is literally going to him and saying, what are you saying? He is out of his mind. They're like, Jesus, you're stepping over your skis here. You just said you're greater than Solomon and greater than Jonah, which by the way, if Jonah's a fake character, what's the big deal? Anyway, so Jesus, you just said you're greater than them and you just said that the dumb Ninevites are, are actually better off than the Sadducees and Pharisees and you just said the queen of Ethiopia is better off than them, like you're gonna get us all killed. Jesus, just slow your roll. Let us help you. And what does Jesus say? You know what? You want to know who my family is? My family are those who do the will of the Father. The ones who change. The ones who repent. The ones who turn from their sin and follow Jesus. Jesus said there's a fish. There's a fish. Jesus says he created the heavens and the earth. And Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Jesus said that there was a flood, there was a flood. And I want you to think about this. You, you even have, I mean, these are, these are very harsh statements. Why? James, the brother of Jesus, is, is one of the biggest doubters of Christ. And Jesus says, hey, if he's not doing the will of my father, then he's not my family. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? I mean, if you're James, it's, it's like, Imagine your brother or sister is like, yeah, I'm the son of God. Like, of course you are. Just because you're the favorite, you think you're Jesus? You think you're perfect? Yeah, right. And then he's sitting here going, see, I told you it's crazy. He thinks he's the greater Solomon and the greater Jonah. Mom, go tell him to knock it off before he gets us killed. What's fascinating is who ends up being the pastor of the Jerusalem church? James, half-brother of Jesus. But initially, he's like, I don't know about this. This guy's making big claims and he's gonna get us in trouble and he's bringing shame to the family and he's saying things that can't be taken back and he's saying things that are gonna get him killed. So then why does James change? Because Jesus is who he says he is. He's the son of God. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the payment for our sin. He is the lamb to take away the sins of the world. And so James believes, turns, follows. So for us, you have to ask yourself this question because there's this, this polarizing thoughts in the text. What do you mean my family or those who do the will of the Father and the ones who don't aren't your family? Jesus prioritizes his spiritual family over his earthly family. Some of you want to shoot me right now. Look at your text. Look at your text. Now, here's where we got we to gotta really think about this. Because for some of us, like, man, I hate the church, but I love Jesus. You hate Jesus' family? You hate the bride of Christ? You hate God's kids? You'd rather spend time with non-Christians than Christians that you're going to spend eternity with? 
Does that sound smart, biblical, helpful? It really doesn't. Now, there's a difference between saying, I'd rather be around non-Christians than my Christian family that I'll be with forever than saying, I want to be around non-Christians because I want to see them in heaven. I want them to be a part of God's family. I don't want them to be the unbelieving Pharisees who thought they knew better than Jesus. I want them to be Nineveh that repented. I want them to be the queen of Sheba who acknowledged that God was speaking because the wisdom was so perfect and so true that she could not deny it. See, when that line comes, part of doing the will of the Father is valuing the things of the Father. And he says, this is your eternal family. And Jesus says, that's my family. Because that's who you're going to spend eternity with. Those are the people that are turning from their sin and walking towards Christ, walking towards godliness, walking towards heaven. And so Jesus lays it down. And he's officially humiliated, embarrassed, and chastised the religious leaders. You're worse than Nineveh. You're worse than the Queen of Sheba. And you are now worse than the carpenters, the fishermen, the tax collectors, the Gentile believers that are my disciples. They're actually family. You're actually not. It's a very condemning passage if you're a Pharisee. Now, if you're a Gentile, this is what's very, 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 very encouraging is that you could not know your left from your right but still be saved. That's encouraging. You could be on an intellectual journey and come to the saving faith that, wow, God is real. How did earth get here? How did truth get here? How do we determine right from wrong? How does this fit being so far from the sun and so close to the sun and, and life? Wow, you can look through morality and reason and realize, wow, there is a God. You could be a tax, you could work for the government and still go to heaven, right? Like these are, you can be a tax collector. You can be a fisherman. Not only that, can you be a part of the family? You can actually be used by God for great things. Look at Jonah. Jonah doesn't like Nineveh, doesn't want to go. And God says, no, I'm going to use you and you're going to give the message. He's like, I don't want to. God doesn't care. It's going to be you. You're going to say my words, and I'm going to save them. God can use you in your ignorance, in your stubbornness, in your unbelief. If you are his, he can and will use you. Now, to do the will of the Father. Let's not overcomplicate this. I think sometimes in Christian land or Christianese, we get so focused on doing the will of God that we actually miss the will of God. I will hear people just so frustrated. I don't know if God wants me to park here or if I should park there, right? You're going, you're grocery shopping. Does God want me to get four avocados or three? But it's two for a dollar. Is that, you know, so wrapped up in, should I shop it here? Should I go there? Should I wear my blue socks or my red socks? Focus on what is explicitly in Scripture. That is the will of God. 
Focus on the moral and ethical imperatives of Scripture. Focus on the majors and God will lead you to the minors. Focus on the clarity. He will help you get to what is not as clear. See, what did Jonah know to be true about God? That he was gracious and kind and loving and slow to anger. He knew those things about God. God got him to Nineveh in his own way. God got him there. God will get you there. What does God say about marriage? What does God say about the words of your mouth coming out of your heart? That was earlier in chapter 12. What does he say about forgiveness? What does he say about praying for your enemy? What does he say about giving to Caesar what is Caesar's? Do the will of the Father. Do what is written. Don't change him. Don't change the words. Do exactly as he says. And God will lead you to these, should I go here? Should I go there? Should I talk to him? Should I talk to them? You ever see God close and open doors in your life? And then slowly, all of a sudden, you get to this destination. You're like, I don't even know how I got here. God is guiding you just like he guided Jonah. Here's the prayer, though. Can it not take a whale or a great fish to cause us to listen? There's got to be an easier way, right? That's my prayer. God, I don't need a whale. At least I don't think, right? I want to do the will of the Father. You look at Jesus over and over again. He's like, I am here to do the will of the Father. What does that mean? He's showing you what it looks like to do the will of the Father, to not give in temptation, to not seek power, seek money, seek fame, seek self, be selfless. Look at John 4. He's like, what feeds me is to do the will of the Father. We don't have to save people. We give the message. If Jonah can give the message of you're going to be destroyed in 40 days or be destroyed, and 120,000 people can repent, clearly it's the work of the Lord, not the work of the messenger. The messenger was the vessel. We are to be the vessel. Therefore, we don't need to be embarrassed about whales and floods and creation. Give the word of the Lord as written, and God will figure out the rest. This is what it means to do the will of the Father. Jesus comes with an unpopular message in an unpopular way. Repent and believe, for the king is at hand. And as the disciples give their lives over to Jesus more and more, there's nothing they can do that pull them away from the Father. There's nothing they can threaten them with. There's nothing better than following Jesus and doing the will of the Father. Focus on that, and you are a part of his family. And there's nothing greater than being a part of the family of Jesus. Amen? Okay, some questions for us to consider. Why is it important to believe that Jonah was a historical event? Because Jesus treats it as a historical event. And it makes no sense for Jesus to use fictional characters to make realistic points to real people. And it isn't consistent with how he uses Solomon, okay? It matters because Jesus views it a certain way. Two, Jonah had a hard heart against Nineveh. Is there anyone you'll be mad to see in heaven? 
Okay, I see that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because in Revelation, we're told there'll be no sin, no shame, no anger. So you won't have those feelings. But there is inside of us, I think, there's always someone you're like, I wouldn't be angry if I didn't see him in heaven, right? There's someone inside of you, you're like, man, if, they, if them, oh, they've hurt you, they've wounded you, they believe something that you just can't believe, you can't believe, like, if they become a Christian, it'll somehow bring down the Christian name, We need to know inside of us that we would not wish hell upon anyone. Not upon anyone. That that we would desire that all men be saved. That all peoples, all places be saved. This is the problem with Israel. They are chosen by God and they want to keep it all to themselves. And God says, no, it was supposed to go to the ends of the earth. It was supposed to go to the ends of the earth. So New Testament, through the church, we're commissioned to go to the ends of the earth and share the message with everyone, everywhere, and let God decide how it all works out. We're to share the message. Okay? Three, why are the religious leaders called worse than the people of Nineveh and the queen of the south? Because they would not repent and they were given far more signs, wonders, word of God, prophets of God, son of God. They're given everything you can think of and they still wouldn't change. So when someone tells you, well, if God would just take my cancer, if God would just, if God would just, it's a false, it's a lie. At the root of it is, I don't want to change. If I'm going to change, then I need to see this. You create your own narrative. And what happens is God will do a work and, well, well, maybe that was this, maybe that. No, 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 no. They're worse because they refused to change, repent, to turn. Four. How can you make sure that being a part of Jesus' family is more important than your own family? See, if you love your family more than you love God's family, you'll worship what's not of Christ. Greatest thing you can do for your family is to love Jesus and to teach them to love Jesus and to teach them that the greatest thing they can do is be a part of God's eternal family that will eternally be in heaven with him. There's nothing better than being with Jesus. We have to make that connection from this text. Five, what does it mean to do the will of the Father? Don't overcomplicate that. Do what the word of God says. When it tells you to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, do it. When Psalm 119 tells you to meditate on his word, do it. When it tells you to hide his word in your heart, do it. When it tells you to forgive, do it. When it tells you to pray, do it. Tells you to share the gospel. Do it. Don't fill in all these blanks. Well, if God was then, and if God really wanted me to, then what's, let the plain things be the main things. Okay? And God will direct you in these other areas of where you should go and how you should go. What you need to be encouraged by is that you are a part of his family. No matter how sinful, how broken, how incomplete, no matter how uneducated, he saved you, called you his own, and now is sending you out to share that message. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. Uh, The book of Matthew, it has challenging truths. We pray that we would hold up your word high. It's your word, not ours, that we wouldn't apologize for it, change it, alter it, that we would sufficiently hold that it is one book, one God, 
redeeming his people from all the nations all around the world through his son, Jesus, through the proclamation and declaration of the gospel, the good news that Christ came to save sinners. We pray that we would hold up your word, hold up your values, that we would do your will when it comes to marriage and parenting and finances and morality, that we wouldn't be shaken by the world when it laughs at our morality and ethics, when it laughs and mocks the word of God, that we would not be altered or changed, that we would hold you high and follow you no matter what the embarrassment, no matter what the consequence, that we are your family and we will follow you anywhere. That is the prayer of our heart. Equip us and prepare us to follow you to the ends of the earth as your children, as the greatest father and the greatest savior. We thank you in Jesus' name. Jesus' name we pray, amen.